Well, thank you so much, uh, Taylor, for that powerful testimony. And I, if I might uh, be allowed to dedicate this message to you today, as well as many others that would be part of this amazing rebuilding project that we're on. One of the themes that we've established is that there is an inherent solitude that God put in all of us that creates a longing for communion with God and one that God brings back to us as his gift. It's in this context in Genesis that we saw that Adam was allowed to name all the animals and God gave him the the freedom to discover his own solitude. And at that point, in that context, it's God who says, it is not good for man to be alone. God himself is a community, uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and therefore deep in the structure of human family and human life is this amazing mirror of the Trinity that we've looked at, man, woman, and the bearing of children. And every when on earth, all 7.3 billion of us come from the fruit of that truth. And one of the great themes we've been trying to develop is that the commodity-driven, utilitarian, self-focused vision of the world regarding personhood, marriage, and so forth is pushed us into what we've called autonomous solitude and the importance of us not uh, embracing that. Marriage is designed to reflect an image of the Trinity, designed to foster uh, self-donation. And it's the only antidote to the self-focused inward gaze, which we talked about its trajectory toward autonomous solitude. Marriage is designed to mirror the truth that God is a covenant-making God. And all of those truths we've been looking at in the life uh, last few weeks. But our text this morning uh, beautifully unfolds, and we hopefully discover that It is not God's only design to foster all of these great truths that we've been looking at. There is an alternative plan, which is found in singleness and celibacy, and that is the focus of this morning's homily. This is uh, part four in this series, where we're trying to kind of lay out the landscape of John Paul II's wonderful work on the theology of the body. Uh, The purpose of this is to help to stimulate a lot of thinking. This is really more in the perspirational than inspirational category, actually, but it's important because we we rely too much on the other. We really need some really hard spade work in the decades ahead for us to recapture a biblical vision, and that's what this whole series is about. Uh, We see in the earlier part of Matthew 19, which wasn't read today, but this call to go back to the beginning, Christ willing to expose a number of deviations from the original plan, such as polygamy in the Old Testament, divorce, etc., and he reaffirms that the original plan remains intact. Well, this text this morning is the disciples' reaction to that. They are so amazed by Jesus without blinking, saying, despite the fall, despite the human sinfulness, despite the hardness of your heart, despite Moses' own misunderstanding of God's plan, in fact, it's all intact. And the disciples say something which is almost modern, Wow, if that's true, it's better not even to marry. And it's at that point that Jesus says something which begins the kernel for our text, and I think in many ways the testimony that was given earlier. He says, Not everyone can accept this teaching, but only to those to whom it has been given. 
Because this clearly implies that there is a secondary gift which few receive, perhaps, but runs parallel to marriage, the sacred gift of singleness and celibacy. Now, the word singleness is a modern term. It is not the, it is not the biblical term at all. That's, not, that's a term that we use. So if by singleness you mean that some of us are prone to a life of autonomous solitude, that is not the biblical vision of what we call singleness. If by singleness we mean single-minded focus, exclusivity of intent, the undivided life, discovering deeper ways in which God brings communion into our lives and community into our lives, then we're much closer to the biblical focus. Apostle Paul, among others, talks about someone being chosen or being chosen to enter into the stake of, uh, not enter into marriage for the sake of uh, the kingdom of God, and tries to capture that what Jesus said in Mark 12, 25. There, as we had read, Jesus in a dispute with the, Pharisees, with the Sadducees who didn't believe in the resurrection. In the context of that, Jesus says something This is quite remarkable. He says in the resurrection, there is neither marriage nor giving in marriage. In the resurrection, there is neither marriage nor giving in marriage. This is an eschatological statement with enormous ramifications. This has huge ramifications for us. Did he really say that? He said that. Julie and I will not be married in the resurrection. Did he say that? What does that mean? I mean, it just kind of throws everything into question. What does this mean for us? It demonstrates that marriage is not an end in itself. Even marriage, as glorious as it is, that we've explored the last several weeks, is a pointer. It's, it's a sign. It's a symbol. It's, a, it's an image, a type of something else. Yes, it is an image of the Trinity. It's an image of self-donation. It's an image of covenant faithfulness, all the rest. But it still points something beyond itself. And even Paul in Ephesians 5, when he goes to this long passage about self-donation, the wife submitting to the husband, the husband laying on his life for the wife, all of that becoming one flesh, Paul says something which is very interesting. He says at the end of that text, this mystery is profound, but I'm talking about, and you expect him to say that this whole passage is about marriage, the mystery of marriage, the beauty of marriage, or whatever, but he doesn't say that, does he? What I'm really talking about here, he says, is about Christ and the church. Oh my goodness. All of these texts are really about something deeper, something that goes beyond what we thought. Christ and the church. That's the eschatological reality to which we're all moving as the people of God. The church of Jesus Christ in full communion with the triune God. In the eschaton, there'll be no marriage because there'll be no need for a pointer will be engulfed in the very presence of the triune God. There's no need for an earthly mirror when we stand in the presence of him in his heavenly glory. So we live in this already not yet tension, as was also prayed today by the other Taylor, <laughs> the two Taylors here. This means that the rule and reign of God is already breaking into the present age, but has not yet been fully consummated and realized. Now, this is the interesting thing. Some people have a particular sensitivity to the eschatological reality regarding marriage. That is, some people in this life have the gift, in this age, 
of which will be shared by all of us in the age to come. Namely, that the fleshly topology of marriage is lost in the full reality of the bride of Christ, married to Christ himself, namely the church. In that case, a call to singleness and celibacy is a temporal anticipation of the resurrected life. This is the gift which Christ refers to. And if you have that wonderful gift, then you're called to live in the present age as if you already embody the reality of the marriage supper of the Lamb and all of its fullness and joy, which brings us all together, men, women, and every tribe, tongue, and language in a one amazing, harmonious community. And all of us mirror that truth. And many of us mirror that in the context of marriage. Others have the higher calling of mirroring it in the present state that they're in, in their singleness, married to Christ, in devotion to his church in some deep ways. So if you're called to singleness, it's not because you are called to a state of solitude, but because you already are discovering the even deeper communions to which marriage only points us and is a shadow of that which is to come. This is what Paul actually says quite boldly, and he, of course, has his own gift, doesn't he? But he says, if you're called to be married, to choose marriage, you do well, but the gift of celibacy, you do even better. Because in that sense, you embody that which is the fuller realization of the inbreaking kingdom. Now, clearly, this divine gift is never meant to put us into a singleness at war with marriage. This is not a zero-sum game, where the only way we can honor singleness is by debasing marriage, or by debasing marriage to honor singleness, or debasing singleness to honor marriage. John Paul Tautou actually says that the renunciation of the married state by those who are called to celibacy is actually heightened when we're aware not only of what we're choosing, but about what we are renouncing. The church has struggled with this a lot, partly because of the writings of Augustine, frankly, partly because of the long sojourn of fighting with various Gnostic ideas like Manichaeanism. Yes, that is a heresy I cannot pronounce. Um, But the Manichaean heresy uh, was one of many things the early church battled with, which basically, you had two versions of it, but basically the idea that sexual activity was somehow sinful, you know, even within marriage, or two, that the body was somehow something to be ashamed of, ashamed of your body and the various ways that God has gifted the human body. And so all that clouded the, the fact that these earthly witnesses that God has given to us in marriage and celibacy to mirror Christ and his church. So we also acknowledge this morning that this choice between married, the married life and the life of singleness and celibacy, or you prefer the single-focused life, is not something that is two categories like we've often made them to be. There is actually the temporary state of celibacy, which everyone experiences. Many of you here this morning may not feel remotely or even a little bit called to the celibate life. Many of you may anticipate someday, perhaps, uh, if the right things happen, that you would be in a married state. And also, those of us that are in the married state, we know that we are called from time to time to temporary celibacy. 1 Corinthians 7, 5, Paul says point blank, there are times when the married couples agree to be celibate for a period of prayer and fasting. That means that we have 
celibacy in our past, we have celibacy in our, in our present, and of course celibacy ultimately in our future where there's no marriage or giving in marriage. So we see that though the calling of celibacy is a lifetime experience for some, it's actually the universal experience for everyone in a certain point. So that means that if you think about it, if you're a celibate, you, you come from marriage, you were born, born out of a marriage, uh, you are a celibate, you are moving toward the ultimate marriage of Christ and his church. So celibacy is framed by marriage, and marriage is framed by celibacy. You come from the celibate life, you may even experience that within marriage, you may be experiencing that after marriage, particularly if you're a widow, widower, or if you have experienced divorce, you're now in a state of celibacy, perhaps, uh, in your current point, and then someday we're all going to where there's neither marriage nor giving a marriage. So these two states are actually deeply entwined. Marriage and celibacy are not two things. They're one thing in the vision of the biblical view. They both mirror and anticipate the same reality. In fact, we'll someday all be engulfed in that real marriage. And so marriage and celibacy are deep mysteries which are both entwined one with another. And I hope you begin to see how deeply the contemporary church has been co-opted by the culture's war against singles and married, the war of the genders, the quicksand of autonomous solitude. It's at every turn. And part of our challenge as the people of God is to rise up and re-articulate the wonderful vision of these states to which God has joyously given to all of us. We might draw from Homer in the wisdom of the Greek mythology in reference to the strengths of Messina. Remember the rocky shoal of Scylla and the six-headed monster of Charybdis. It is in this mysterious anticipation of future realities which keeps both states, marriage and celibacy, from being destroyed by the Scylla of solitude and the Charybdis of autonomy. Perhaps again drawing from Homer's Odyssey, you recall that Odysseus and Jason plan a strategy to resist the deadly sound of the sirens. Odysseus' idea was to plug his ears with wax, and they strapped him to the mast, you remember? And it's only through great agony that he passed the straits because the sound of the sirens pierced through the wax. But Jason devised a better strategy. He, can, he spoke with Orpheus, the Greek god of music, who said the only way to counter the sound of the sirens is to counter it with an even greater song, the music of heaven. And that's how he went past through the straits. I think that's exactly our task today. We must not be captivated by the song of this age, which is about the inward gaze, the war of the genders, the zero-sum game between marriage and singleness, the autonomous self, the thinking that Christians are only mad and against things. We must tell a bigger story. We must cast a larger narrative. We must sing a better song. We live in a highly sexualized culture, don't you think? <laughs> and what a gift celibacy must be to a culture like ours. And we have seen, by the way, the beautiful emergence of over 100 Protestant monastic orders that have happened in the last 40 years, including the Methodist orders as well. So there's a whole neo-monastic movement out there that Protestants are discovering 
And there's also the amazing new ways that, as we heard today actually, the wonderful ways that singles are discovering what happened to, to friendship, the gift of friendships. Because now all the relationships have been secularized. So part of our mission is to push back against the absolute saturation of a sexualized culture and to rediscover many, many lost dimensions of this as we pass through the straits. So let's honor those who build beautiful marriages. Let's honor those who live out the eschatological truths in the present as singles. Because both states image the one great truth of Christ and his church. And it's in those authentically lived out lives in both states that we actually are able to sing an even more compelling song. We will sing that song of the eschaton. We will sing that song that reminds the world of the transitory nature of this life. We will sing the song of the new creation. We will sing the song of the future bodily resurrection. We will sing the song of the wonderful marriage, married supper of the Lamb. And it's in those realities that we will finally be able to communicate that great mystery, which is what we're all headed, that is communion with the triune God the ultimate community. Thanks be to God. Amen.